Amen. And thank you to our choir for that beautiful anthem. I mean, how many other churches can you go to where the choir can actually figure out how to work Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into an anthem? <laughs> Rhythmically in every other way. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you for being with us today as we've come today together today for another special opportunity for worship. Thank you to our children for leading us in worship this morning. Let's give them a hand. That is, it is so exciting to have them here leading us, to have Rosalind and Becky leading those, those children's ministries. Kathy, thank you so much. This is, this is extraordinary. Uh, you know, I, I hope that you really just kind of made a mental note of something that was happening at the beginning of the service. And that was that when, when Becky stood up here as an ordained minister with her Bible that she received on these very steps, what did you say, thir almost 30 years ago? <laughs> we'll, we'll debate about that. Um, anyway, uh, but she, she held that up. And, and I don't know if you could see, but of course, you had Cora, her daughter, singing in the choir, and Thomas, her two-year-old son, who was receiving his Bible. And if that doesn't give us a witness about the importance of covenant family and the, the commitments that we make in baptism, I don't know what, what will. Because we are part of God's covenant family and we believe that, that not just for the adults but for our children, God has called us to serve one another. As a matter of fact, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus said, I mean, excuse me, Peter said that this promise is for you and for your children. And so it is so much fun to have these connections here. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Today we're celebrating Children's Sunday because we believe in covenant family. And that's why we're going to be reading a very familiar passage from the Gospel of Mark. It is Mark chapter 10, verses 3 through 16. It's a short passage, but I encourage you to read along either in your bulletin or by using the screens in front of you or the Pew Bible or perhaps even the Bible that you brought with you. But this is Mark chapter 10, and Jesus is calling the children. And the parents of these children were bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Do you see what's happening here? They are bringing their children to Jesus for healing and for teaching and for love, for whatever reason. And the disciples are rebuking them, saying, he doesn't have time for that. Get these kids away from him. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. Today, O oh God, we ask that you would help us to understand your word more fully, whether we are young or old, whether we are your youngest children or your oldest. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. 
Over the last 10 months, we've been talking about the history of First Presbyterian Church because this is our 175th year of ministry. And I want to continue that today as we continue to learn about the history of our church by talking to you about one of our recent and favorite pastors. As San Antonio moved into the 1950s, America was changing. Texas was changing. The Presbyterian Church was changing. And First Presbyterian Church welcomed a new minister. The son of a Presbyterian minister and a Virginian by birth, Dr. George Mose served churches from North Carolina to Missouri. He was installed as the pastor of First San Antonio on August 28, 1949, and he served until his retirement in 1969. Now, it's hard to summarize the 20-year ministry of such a beloved minister in such a short time. But let me just begin by saying this. Dr. Mose was well known for his power as a preacher and especially for his deep, resonant voice. That prophetic voice like thunder from the mountain that all of us preachers wish we had. <laughs> For all that, following a Christmas Eve service, one well-intentioned commentator once said, your minister is the John Wayne of the pulpit. <laughs> but Dr. Mose had a softer side as well. Those who grew up at FPC remember that he not only had a voice like Moses, but that he always had a pocket full of candy or gum for children as he greeted them at the door after the service. I'm sorry, kids. Dietary restrictions will not allow me to give you candy anymore, but we'll figure something out. But Dr. Mose did not limit his leadership to the confines of First Presbyterian Church. He played an important role as a civic leader in the community. And although he was not strictly beholden to a single political party, he was well known for his attention to politics and community affairs. The late U.S. Congressman Maury Maverick once declared that George Mose is the only preacher in this town with guts enough to pray over a Democratic Party dinner. <laughs> and I've definitely heard stories about times when he would hear about something happening at the school and he would go down to the school and talk to the principal and let him know that he and the school had stepped out of line with Christian morality. But Dr. Mose did a lot of things to move this church forward. It was Dr. Mose who introduced the committee structure to this church, something that we think is just born into the DNA of Presbyterians was actually introduced in the 50s. He initiated officer training for elders and deacons. And under George Mose, Merle Hart was the first woman elected and ordained to the office of elder. Now, the title and theme of this sermon is taken from a statement that Dr. Mose made in his introductory remarks for Dr. James I. McCord, who was then professor and dean of Austin Theological Seminary. In his introduction to a talk or a series of lectures called What Presbyterians Believe that were to be delivered by Dr. McCord, Dr. Mose said this. He said, what you believe is terrifically important. Let me say that again. What you believe is terrifically important. Dr. Mose believed in teaching the faith. 
He believed in Sunday school. He believed in theological education, and he believed in Bible study. He believed that knowing what we believe is important for adults as well as for children. And in his 20 years as pastor, Dr. Mose took several innovative steps to promote discipleship and to promote the life of the mind in service to God. It was under Dr. Mose's leadership that a Christian education committee was established to provide and supervise an adequate program of Christian nurture for adults and children alike. Under his direction, the church library was developed. He led a large uh, large-scale expansion of the children's ministry and education space, including the purchase and renovation of the Armed Services YMCA building, which became Westminster Hall on the north side of our campus. And most significantly, it was under Dr. Mose's leadership that Robert H. Bullock was called to be First Presbyterian Church's minister for Christian education. Dr. Robert Bullock was already well-known across the country as an author and a teacher of the Bible. And he shared Dr. Mose's passion for teaching. He shared the idea that what you believe is terrifically important. And by adding him to the staff, First Presbyterian Church gained its own in-house Bible scholar-in-residence. Under Dr. Bullock's leadership, FPC not only broadened her mission of education, but deepened it as well. And we're privileged to have both one of Dr. Mose's children, Jean Mose, and one of Dr. Bullock's children, Emily Bullock Peoples, here in the congregation. Jean's not here, but Emily is. Thank you for... Thank you for sharing your dad with us. What you believe is terrifically important. Why was Dr. Mose so concerned about the teaching and education of the faith? Well, he led First Presbyterian Church for 20 years, but it wasn't just any 20 years. George Mose was pastor at First Presbyterian Church in a turbulent time. He shepherded First Presbyterian Church from the 50s to the 60s. San Antonio was no longer a frontier western town. Now it was a global city. It had come of age, evidenced by the housing of Hemisphere, the hosting of Hemisphere in 1968. Dr. Mose led in a period that included both the Cold War and a culture war, with issues spanning civil rights to the sexual revolution, from the space race to race riots, through the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. This was the time that bridged World War II and Vietnam. And all across America, the Presbyterian Church was wrestling with issues, from social justice to dispensationalism, that would sow the seeds of conflict that continue to haunt the American church to this day. These were times of both prosperity and conflict, of both scientific progress and cognitive confusion. And into that cultural moment, Dr. Mose declared, what you believe is terrifically important. Nowadays, it's very popular to say that what that really what matters 
is your truth. The idea is that each of us has his or her own truth. That there's no single truth that can be described as the truth. Just many truths from many perspectives. What you believe doesn't matter as long as you're sincere about whatever it is you believe. We've gone from what to whatever. But there's an old saying that everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not to his own facts. As Christians, the facts matter. Because as Christians, what we believe matters. The content of our faith matters. Why? Because ideas have consequences. During World War II, William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, once observed that the content of our faith matters. And to paraphrase, he said that the Nazis sincerely believe what they believe, but that sincere belief in the wrong things has led to innumerable evil actions. Ideas have consequences. One of Dr. Mose's contemporaries, Dr. John Leith, one of my mentors, Ron Skate's mentors, used to say that bad doctrine hurts people. It undermines the church and it distracts people from the truth of Jesus Christ. Whereas good doctrine, on the other hand, builds us up. It empowers us. It shapes us in the image of Christ. Ephesians 4.13 challenges us not to be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Many people think of faith as an empty bag that can be filled with random spiritual feelings or even popular religious ideas, whatever's just kind of floating around in the universe. But Christianity has specific content. It's based on historical facts. And it not only matters that you believe, it matters what you believe. And it is terrifically important that we teach Christianity's unique content. Because if we don't teach it, people aren't going to hear it anywhere else. The unique content at the center of Christianity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do people know who Jesus Christ is? Do they know that he was God in the flesh or that he was, or do they believe that he was just an ordinary man? Do people know that the whole human race is in danger because we've rebelled against God and that each one of us is a sinner who desperately needs God's grace and forgiveness. Do people know that by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you and for me, Christ brought us over to God's side and put our lives together whole and holy in his presence? Do people know that he was really raised from the dead? Do people know that he's still present and active in the world and that he can change your life? Do people know that Jesus gave up his eternal life for us mortals so that us mortals could have eternal life with him? Do people know that even though we are more sinful than we ever thought, God loves us more than we could ever imagine? Does knowledge of these things 
make a difference in people's lives? Does it make a difference in their eternity? Does it make a difference in their understanding of right and wrong, good and evil, and their understanding of the world, of themselves, and of one another? What you believe is terrifically important. So turning to our Bible story for today, why did Jesus want the children to come to him? He wanted them to come to him because what they believe is terrifically important as well. The Apostle Paul told his protege, his student Timothy, that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know, thanks to COVID, the content of education has come into the spotlight of our national attention. And all of us, especially parents, have been learning a lot about what our children are learning in school and from other sources. Recently, one of the gubernatorial candidates for the Commonwealth of Virginia declared that parents should not be in charge of what their kids learn in school. I disagree. And I disagree because what our children learn, what our kids learn is terrifically important. But who is educating our children? And what are they learning to believe? According to a study released in 2012, that's nine years ago, mind you, when under 15-year-old kids have pressing questions it seems that most youngsters would prefer to ask Google than a parent or a teacher. When they have hard life questions, 54% of 6 to 15-year-olds turn to a search engine first. That's over half saying they'd ask Google an important life question before they ask us. That survey of 500 children highlighted how central technology has become to young lives. And that was nine years ago. That was before TikTok. Now let me ask you a question. Has it gotten better or worse since then? Our children are being seduced and manipulated. In the first 20 years of an American child's life, he or she will see something approaching one million advertisements. From TV commercials to pop-up ads on smartphone screens at the rate of about a thousand a week. This makes advertising the most voluminous information source in the education of your child. According to the Columbia University Irving Medical Center, growing research finds that the more time spent on social media in front of screens the more likely a person will experience mental health symptoms like anxiety, isolation, and hopelessness. And according to one recent study, high levels of social media use over the span of four years was associated with increased depression and suicide among middle and high school youths. And the damning fact of it all is that the social media companies know this. This week, Francis Haugen 
A former Facebook product manager testified that the company's own internal research reveals that the companies are aware of the damage they do. Through their search and use algorithms, the companies actively exploit children's insecurity on issues like body image, popularity, anxiety, and sexuality to maximize their profits at the expense of the children that they know they're exploiting. It led Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal to say this, that the damage to self-image and self-worth inflicted by Facebook today will haunt a generation. What people, what our children believe is terrifically important because believing the lies is breaking them. Why did Jesus say to let the children come to him? Because he knew that what they believe is terrifically important. The manipulation and exploitation of children is not new. And that's why the Lord made the education of children a fundamental core command of the mission of his people. Long before these children came to Jesus in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, the Lord of heaven and earth declared, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And so when Jesus said, let the children come to me, he was not being radical. He was not being progressive or innovative. He was not being faithful to, to anything other than the law of God. He was being faithful to one of the fundamental commands that God gave to his people to teach the truth to our children. And so Jesus said, do not hinder them. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. I want, to ask yourself this, I want you to ask yourself this question. In what ways do we hinder our children from getting to Jesus? Unfortunately, too many of us in the church hinder our kids from learning the truth of God and the good news of Jesus Christ, either by our silence, our passivity, or by our example. Kids don't know what they don't know. They're like sponges, and they're going to soak up whatever they are soaked in. And unless they are immersed in truthful teaching and godly example, they will absorb whatever they are given by toxic curriculum or predatory technology. And so what are they learning by what they hear and what they see in your life? What are they learning? What are you teaching them? Are you hoping it'll just happen? Are you making it happen? We need to make the truth of God available to our children. We cannot assume or trust that they will learn it from anyone but us. We need to be active. We can no longer be passive. We cannot count on the school or the culture or the media to teach Christian values, to teach the gospel to kids anymore. 
Discipleship begins in the home. Are we providing the opportunities and the resources they need to hear the truth? We need to make the truth of God accessible. We have to care enough to make it clear. We need to teach it in a way that children know that God's love and God's truth are for them. Not when they are grown-ups, but right now. That he gave his life and he revealed himself for them. We need to get down on their level. We need to speak their language and we need to meet them where they are. And we need to teach the truth of God accurately. That what we believe matters. They need to be soaked in the good news of Jesus Christ. They need to believe in the cross because it's the proof that God loves you. They need to believe in the resurrection because it's the proof that God has the power to make a difference in your life now and forever. They need to believe that they are made in the image of God, that he has a plan and a purpose for their lives. They need to believe that God is real and in control because in a lot of ways they see their worlds spinning out of control. And they need to believe in the word of God. They need to believe that the, that the Bible is the word of God because the Bible tells me Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Not the school, not the TV, not the computer, not the smartphone. It is the Bible that tells me that Jesus loves me. Jesus showed us that we must teach them by loving them. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. I think it's fascinating that, that God proved his love for us. He proved his truth, not from a distance, but by getting personal. He got close to them, close enough to hold them in his arms. We've made covenant promises to these children. But are we trying to teach them to influence them from a distance? We've committed to support them, to guide them, to love them. And a great first step, as, Be as Becky said, is to learn their names, to know their names. But let me ask you a question. You may know now every single child who was up here today. Is there any reason they should know your name? Are you close enough to them that they should know your name? If the answer to that is no, I pray that you'll make that, make that change soon. When Jesus taught, he also taught with affection and authenticity. When Jesus came into our lives, he took on our lives. He faced our temptations. He knew our desires. He felt our hunger and our thirst. He suffered our death. He didn't send a double or a stunt man. He got down here in the mud and the blood and the mess and the stress to prove to us that he understands what we've been going through. No teenager has ever been 50 before, but I've been a teenager. No elementary schooler has ever been 60 before, but you have been an elementary schooler. Be authentic with them. But listen also to what Deuteronomy says. It says that we are to believe ourselves too. It's not just what we believe that's important. It's also how we believe. And Jesus says this. It's not just that we come to him. It's how we come to him. And just, so Jesus said... When you come to God, be like them. Be like them. 
Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What does that mean to receive the kingdom like a child? Jesus says to come come to him with a childlike faith. What does that mean? It means no provisos, no preset limits, no quid pro quos, no hidden agendas or conditions, no premeditated outcomes or ulterior motives. Just trusting that Jesus is good, just trusting that Jesus loves you and that he can be trusted. Just believing, just trusting that he can make a difference. You know, when I was growing up, when I was these kids' age, I believed that the Bible was true and that it meant what it said. And then I grew up and I went to college and I learned that the Bible wasn't true. And you can't believe what it says. But you know what? The older I get, the more experience I have, I've come to learn that the Bible is true and it means what it says. We have to make sure that when we come to Jesus, we come like children without all of those premeditated agendas because he who promised is faithful. We have to believe that Jesus loves us, that Jesus is good, and that he can make a difference. So why did Jesus want the children to come to him? Not for a photo op, not because it was cute, not just because he likes kids, not because he wanted to put on a show, not just because he wanted to look different to people who were often overlooked. It was because he valued them immensely. And he knew that what they believe is terrifically important because these children are terrifically important to him. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we know that these children are important to you. And we know that all of your children, whatever age we may be, are important to you. And so we ask that you would help us to come to you with a childlike faith, And to go to children with authenticity and affection, with with truth and love. Lord, help us to share your love and your peace with those who are lost so that they may understand your great love for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.